You are listening to the podcast of Providence Church in Austin, Texas. We hope this message raises your affections for Jesus and helps you live out the gospel in everyday life. In the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, one of the most talked about television series that was out there uh, was called Sex in the City. It was about four friends in New York City and their relational lives, uh, specifically their sex lives and how their sex lives played into their relationships. And uh, sort of the overarching vibe of Sex in the City was consenting adults can freely choose to do whatever they want in their sexual life and really without any big consequence because it's just sex, right? Now, I'm not suggesting that you watch Sex in the City. I'm not recommending it uh, to you. Uh, but it's hard to miss the influence in, uh, that that series had on our culture and the way that that series reflected our culture. Around the same time, there was a campaign going on in the American church. It was aimed mostly at youth, mostly at students and young people, adolescents, called True Love Waits. The idea of it was to get young people to sign a pledge that they would abstain from sex until marriage. The idea was to help young people make sexually pure decisions in a sex-crazed culture. So, on the one hand, you had sex in the city saying, go for it, go for it. And on the other hand, you had True Love Wait saying, wait for it, wait for it. And the only thing they had in common was it, right? Sex. Go for it or wait for it. And that kind of summed up the prevailing wisdom that was offered to young Christians, Christian singles, Christian youth, that was kind of the prevailing wisdom. Go for it or wait for it. These ways of thinking, uh, I think, essentially have the same goal or the same vision of the good life. What is it? To be in a love relationship with satisfying sex. That's the goal. I'll either go out and get it myself, or I'll wait for God to provide it, but that is the vision of the good life, good love relationship, good sex, that's what I want. Go for it or wait for it, that's the goal. Here's the problem. That's not the goal of the Christian life. It's not the promise of the Christian life. Our goal is God. The the greatest promise of the Christian life is God himself. We believe that the good life is life in the kingdom of God through a relationship with Jesus Christ, who is God. The good life is discipleship to Jesus, which raises the question, how do we live out our sexuality as disciples of Jesus? Because it's a big part of our lives. It's a big part of who we are, our sexuality. Like when it comes to my sex life, what difference does it make that I follow Jesus? And I think to answer those two questions, we need more than just go for it or wait for it. We need more than just unfettered individual freedom, I get to do whatever I want, or a list of Christian restrictions and rules. I think we need a grand biblical vision, a Christ-centered vision of our sexuality. 
which is one of the reasons we're going to take the next four weeks at church to talk about sex. Sex at church, y'all. Tell your friends. Here's our plan. Today we're going to talk about a biblical vision of sex, sort of a biblical theology of sex. All I want you to see today is that sex is good. Next week, Bob Thune, who's also speaking at our men's retreat, is going to preach, and he's going to talk about what happens when we go from saying sex is good to sex is is God, when we distort God's good design for sex. And so we're going to look at some cultural distortions of God's good design that affect all of us. And then in weeks three and four, we're going to look at our sexual practices uh, and how they form us, practices of our heart, practices of our body practices as whole people, a sexual ethic. How do those form us? All right, that's, that's where we're headed over the next few weeks. Before we jump in, though, let me give a couple of disclaimers, because I feel like this topic needs some disclaimers. Number one, this topic is a bit overwhelming. There's too much to say than we'll, that we'll be able to say. I felt that this week. I'm like, I, I don't even know where to go here don't know how to narrow it down. And so I think in many ways, we're going we're gonna to raise more questions than we are going to give answers over the next four weeks. And our hope is that this will be sort of a conversation starter, that, that some of those questions will start to get worked out in community because our sexuality is actually not a, part, a, a private part of our life that's walled off from the rest of our relationship with Jesus and his people. It's actually a part of who we are that we ought to authentically engage and talk about in community. And so I, I hope that what we talk about the next four weeks will we'll start some of those conversations. The second thing, uh, disclaimer, is this, and that is this topic is sensitive, and, and I know that it's sensitive, and I realize that in a group of people this size, there are people coming from all different backgrounds, experiences related to sex and sexuality. There are some here who are single, who are longing for an intimate relationship, maybe to the point where you feel sexually frustrated. There are some who are married here who feel sexually frustrated. There are some here uh, who, are dealing, who have same-sex attraction. Uh, there are some who are dealing with sexual addiction. There are some who are struggling with shame and guilt because of past sexual encounters, and they don't know what to do with that shame and guilt. There are some who have in their past experienced sexual abuse. God grieves over that. God grieves over that. I want you to know that wherever you are coming into a topic like this, I want you to know that wherever you are, God loves you. I want you to know that at the outset. God loves you. And he wants to, in Christ, redeem you and make you new and make you whole, not only in your sexuality, but in every area of your life. That's the promise of the gospel. All right? That's my disclaimers. Now, let's jump into the topic for today, which is a biblical vision for sex. And here's what I want you to see today. The only thing I want you to see today is sex is good. It's good. I think Christians have sometimes a reputation of thinking sex is not good, and we only talk about what's wrong with sex. Or or the Bible has the reputation of being against sex. At the very least, it's sexually repressive or sexually regressive. But I want you to know that nothing could be further from the truth. The Bible actually gives a vision of sex and sexuality that says it's good, it's glorious, 
And I want to look at some reasons why. The first reason that sex is good is because of who created it. Sex is good because of who created it. God created sex. He does not think sex is bad. He thought it up. (laughs) He came up with it. Thank you. I didn't even expect that one to be funny, but I'll take it. Look at Genesis 1. Genesis 1, verse 26. Sex is good because of who created it. Verse 26, in the beginning of of the Bible, it says this, then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, say, let's, let's make human beings in our image. And, and in one sense, that means let's make them connectional, relational beings capable of deep intimacy, who desire deep intimacy. Let's make them like that. Verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So right away, sexuality it is a part of God's creation of human beings, male and female, gloriously the same in their humanity, and yet somehow gloriously different in their sexuality. Verse 28, and God blessed them. God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I don't want you to miss the goodness of this, that God directly connects one of the aspects of our mission as human beings to our sexuality. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. In other words, have some kids. Now, we know that in the kingdom of God, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth is much broader than just having kids. Jesus expands that command right? In such a way that he says, be fruitful in all kinds of ways in his kingdom. Multiply disciples in the kingdom. But here in Genesis 1, at the very least, God is saying, have some kids. And he connects that part of the mission to something that's pleasurable. Isn't that good? Like, he didn't have to do it that way. I suppose he could have given us kids in some other way, like in a non-sexual way. I don't know what that would be. I couldn't come up with anything. I, my high school biology days, asexual reproduction, I don't remember how that even worked. But he could have done it that way. Or he could have made sex not pleasurable. And you say, well, he wouldn't have done that or there wouldn't be any kids in the world. Right? Who's going to do it if there's not fun? But Every time you have sex, it doesn't result in producing a child. And so there's something about the pleasure of sex that goes beyond just God trying to get us to produce something. I think sex is inherently pleasurable because God wanted it that way. He delights in it that way. Look at verse 31, the end of Genesis 1. God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. That's God's assessment of everything he made, including sex, very good. Very good. It's good. Why? Because he's good. He makes good things because he's a good God. He's not down on sex. In fact, what's the last thing he says that we read about the man and the woman before sin comes into the world? 
before guilt and shame come into the world, what's the last thing we read about the man and the woman? Well, Tom read it. Look at verse 25 at the end of Genesis chapter 2. Genesis 2, 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They're naked. Their sexuality is on full display, and God approves. God doesn't say, get some clothes on, man. He's like, no, that's good. That's right. That's how I made you. I made you naked. Sexuality on display. Sex is good. This is not the only place in the Bible where God approves of the pleasurable nature of sex. You ever read Song of Solomon? Dude. You read Song of Solomon and you're after like, man, what am I reading here? Is this the Bible? Listen to what Song of Solomon says when the man and the woman consummate their marriage. She says, let my beloved come into his garden and eat its choicest fruits. All right. He says, I came into my garden, my sister and my bride. I gathered my myrrh with my spice. I ate my honeycomb with my honey. I drank my wine with my milk. All signs of blessing and feasting. And then there's this other chorus who speak to the couple in this moment. And I take this chorus to include God's divine blessing of what's going on. And this is what they say. It's what God thinks. Eat, friends, drink, and be drunk with love. Like fallen down, intoxicated, sloppy drunk with love for one another. And I'm like, are, are you sure it's the Bible? God says sex is good. Not only because it's the way we have children, which is good, but because it's pleasurable and, and, and it's a blessing to his people and it's to be received as a gift with thanksgiving. First Timothy chapter 4 says this, everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. We can receive sex as a good gift from God with thanksgiving. Sex is good because God is good. And, and the desire we have for sex is a God-given desire. It's a good desire. It images God. But sex has a context, and that's our second thing. Sex is good because of who made it, who, who created it, created it. But sex is also good because of its context. Now, I want you to see the context. Look back at Genesis chapter 2. These are two important verses in the Bible. They get quoted by Jesus and by the Apostle Paul in the New Testament. Genesis 2, verse 24 and 25. Let's look at the context. Genesis 2, 24. Therefore... A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, what do we learn here about the God-given context for sex? Well, we have one man and one woman. We have that man and that woman holding fast to one another. The word hold fast it just means to be stuck to one another, like, like you're glued together. Uh, we have that man and that woman uh, becoming what, what's called one flesh. 
That means the two become one. They join in such a way that they begin to do life together as one. And, and then we have that man and that woman naked and, unash- naked and unashamed. In other words, they're exposed totally to one another, and yet they are exposed without fear of rejection or shame, or, or, or like this thing's going to go somewhere south and they're going to be disappointed. They don't have any fear of that. And so sex, as it's presented here, is not merely a physical act. It's an expression of a greater union, a one flesh union, a whole person union. Jonathan Grant, who who wrote a wonderful book called Divine Sex, he says this. He says, in sex, we express a desire to join with another person in a deep, complex, interweaving as embodied souls and in souled bodies. It's a great way to say it. Embodied souls and in souled bodies. In other words, you can't separate your body from, from, from your soul. So sex is my whole person commitment, my whole commitment to another whole person. That's what's going on there. Like the Bible refers to this type of total commitment as a covenant. A covenant means I give all of me to all of you. I bind myself to you. I stick to you. I will not reject you. I will not toss you aside. I will not put you to shame. And and my sexual union with you is a sign of that. It's a sign of this binding, this one flesh union. That is the wonderful context for sex. It's the security of a covenant. It's a place of permanence in an impermanent world. It's a place of commitment in a world of throwaway relationships. It's a place of tender nurture and care and a place in a world where people use and abuse one another. I mean, how great does that sound? What a context. But there's an even greater reason that God places sex within the context of a covenant, greater than just giving us security. I want you to see something in 1 Corinthians 6. You can turn there if you want. Or you can just listen. I'm going to read a couple verses. 1 Corinthians 6. In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul is rebuking the Corinthian Christians because some of them are having sex with temple prostitutes. Who thought that was a good idea? But he's writing to them, hey, stop doing that. And he quotes Genesis 2.24 as the reason why they shouldn't be doing that, as if they needed a reason. And listen to what he says, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 16. He says, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute, who holds fast to a prostitute, it's the same word as Genesis 2, becomes one body with her, but as it is written, and then he quotes Genesis 2, 24, the two will become one flesh. Now watch what he does next, though. He's going to connect sexual union between two people to the union he has covenantally with his people in verse 17. He says, but he who is joined to the Lord, who holds fast to the Lord, becomes one spirit with him. He who is joined to the Lord, he who is glued to the Lord, he who is stuck to the Lord is one with him in a permanent relationship with him. That person is bound to God in covenant 
And, and what Paul is saying is sexual union between two people is a picture of that. It's a picture of that kind of relationship. You know, in the Bible, God always relates to his people in covenant. In the Old Testament, he, he compares it to a marriage. He, he tells his people, I'm your husband. You're my wife. I've bound myself into covenant, in covenant with you. And that, com- that covenant is total. God gives himself totally to his people. He doesn't hold anything back. What's his is theirs. Uh, that covenant is monogamous. And he loves his people, and he's not going to toss them aside when a better lover comes along. That covenant is permanent. Nothing can separate us from the love of God that we have in Christ Jesus. That's how God relates to us. And God says sex is a picture of that, which is why he places sex in the context of covenant. It reflects him. There was an extensive study that came out in 2011 uh, called Premarital Sex in America, and it dealt with how young people in America meet and mate and get married. And the study showed something really interesting. It showed that the idea that we live in a hookup generation or hookup culture where people just want to have sex with no strings attached, it said, you know, that's actually sort of an over-exaggerated picture of our culture. It said, actually, the dominant sexual script in our culture is what's called serial monogamy. Serial monogamy, meaning I believe I should be faith, sexually faithful to you in this relationship as long as this relationship lasts. But chances are it won't last, and so someday I will, be, I will find someone else that I can be faithful to. Serial monogamy. I, it, it's ridiculous, but it's kind of like saying... I love you, iPhone 6S. You are my phone. You're my only phone. You're the only phone I use. But you know, iPhone 8 is coming out sometime soon. And so we'll see. We'll see. There's a chance that I one day want to be faithful to iPhone 8. Problem is, people are not like iPhones. Like you can't just move from one sexual relationship to another without leaving part of yourself behind. Because God has designed sex such that it's like gluing two pieces of paper together. And you can't tear those pieces of paper back apart without them leaving part of themselves on each other. There is a whole person binding that happens in sex, and that is a good thing. That's a good thing. But it's not good when you remove sex from its covenant or from its context. God has designed sex for a covenant relationship because that's how he relates to us. Did you know that when you as a married person are faithful, sexually faithful, you don't go outside of the marriage looking for sexual gratification? You're not only loving your spouse well, but you are declaring to the world what God is like. As a single person, when you are sexually faithful, you are not simply obeying some arbitrary rule that God decided to make up one day. You're actually declaring to the world what God is like. You are shining a spotlight on his loyal, faithful love by which he binds himself to his people. 
See, sexual faithfulness is an act of witness. It's an act of worship. We, we witness to what God is really like. We worship God as he really is when we keep sex in the covenant that God created it for. Sex is good because of who created it. God did. Sex is good because of its context, which is covenant. Thirdly, sex is good because of what it calls us to. It's good because of what it calls us to. Did you know that the biblical vision of sexuality actually has more to do with who we are than what we do or don't do, than whatever our experiences are? I mean, think about this. The only person in human history to perfectly live out his sexuality was Jesus, and yet he never had sex. And he wasn't weird or awkward or unfulfilled. He perfectly fulfilled his sexuality. It's amazing. So godly sexuality is apparently not about having sex. It's about being virtuous, Christ-like, in our sexuality. So it's about who we are. Whether you're married or single, it's about who you are, virtue. Singleness and marriage are two vocations or callings within the church uh, as we relate to our sexuality. And they're both necessary in the life of the church, and they both image God. A biblical vision of sexuality calls both singles and marrieds to be virtuous in their sexuality, and virtuous in two ways that I'll mention. First, calls us to be self-giving, and and secondly, it calls us to be self-controlled. Self-giving, self-controlled. Let's talk about singles first. Singleness is a godly calling. Whether it's just for a short time in your life or whether it's for a lifetime, it is a godly calling, and it is given high standing in the Bible. Jesus single. Paul was single. Phoebe was single. Mary Magdalene was single. John the Baptist, single. A large percentage of the early church actually chose singleness as a way of life on purpose. It was the most countercultural thing that you could do in the sex-crazed Roman Empire. And they chose that way of life on purpose. And you know what it said to the, the surrounding culture about what Christians believe about sex and where sex fits in the kingdom of God? It said that we don't worship sex. Sex is not God. Sex is not necessary. So singleness is a necessary expression of sexuality, maleness, femaleness within the church. And so God calls us in singleness to be virtuous. So if you are single, you are called to be self-giving, not self-serving in your sexuality. Meaning the church needs you to engage in the church, to enter into relationships and to display godly femaleness, godly maleness that's not tied to the what's in it for me act of sex, that can live out who you're made to be in your sexuality in such a way that you edify your brothers and sisters in deep, bonded, intimate relationships. If you're single, you're also called to be self-controlled in your sexuality. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. It says, I will not be ruled by my urges, my desires. It says, sex is not God. 
it says, I don't have to have the act of sex in order to complete myself. I'm complete as I am in the way that God created me. Listen, I have teenage girls. They live in a world where the idea of virginity or not being sexually experienced is a badge of shame. How crazy is that? The virtue of self-control is laughed at, scoffed at. I'm embarrassed that I don't have experience in that area. They need to see the possibility of the virtue of self-control lived out by real people who are secure in their sexuality without having sex. What about those who are married? If you're married, you are called to be self-giving, not self-serving in your sexuality. That means that sex is not about what you get out of it. It's about what you give. That means you consider your spouse more important than yourself. That means you are thinking about his or her needs above your own. That means you're considering the ways that you're different. And I imagine you've been married for longer than 15 minutes. You've discovered just how different you are. God has actually designed sex and marriage to be at its best when you tenderly focus on the other person and not what you can get out of it, your own needs. It's, the, it's, it's opposite of the Hollywood movie script. You know, in the movies, it's two people that just, I'm going to get what I want and what I need out of this, and they come together and everything just works out perfectly. Listen, in real life, it doesn't work out perfectly. When you're, when you're serving yourself, that does not work out perfectly. Self-giving. But if you're married... You're also called to be self-controlled in your sexuality. That means you don't go outside the marriage covenant for sexual fulfillment. You're not flirting with somebody at work. You're not looking at pornography. You're not living in your own head in some sort of fantasy world that maybe there's somebody out there that's better than my spouse that God's given me, and maybe I missed the boat on this thing. I think the world desperately needs to see married people who treat sex as an integral part of their relationship to be nourished, protected, cherished, to grow in, who, who, who don't hold to the, the, the cultural narrative that married sex is boring sex or non-existent sex, or that, it, that you know, we just chuck that part of our relationship when the bills and little league and everything starts breathing down our neck, and then, you know, who has time for that? I think the world needs to see married people who treat, who treat sex as a sacred gift to be to received with thankfulness and enjoyed for a lifetime. To your old. Oh, that's gross. <laughs> One of the reasons that sex is good is that it calls us to Christ-like virtue. It calls us to self-giving, it calls us to be self-control to be self-giving, to be self-controlled like Jesus. You know, by the, by the power of the Holy Spirit who's in you, you actually can demonstrate Christ to the world, whether you're single or married, through your sexuality. That, mean, that, mean, that means it's good. It's good because of what it calls you to. Sex is good because of who created it, God. Sex is good because of its context, covenant. Sex is good because of what it calls to, Christ-like virtue, Finally, and very briefly, let me end with this. 
Sex is good because of what it points to. Because of what it points to. Sex is one form of intimacy. It's not the deepest intimacy. Uh, it's a taste of what, uh, what we're made for, but it's not ultimately what we're made for. You might say that sex is not the point. It's pointing. It's pointing. It points us to the highest good possible, which is union with Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says that we are joined to Christ like a man and a woman are joined in marriage, one flesh with him. We're in union with him. He's in us. We're in him. And we can experience that union right now, but only partially, only partially. Any of us, married or single, long for more, don't you? Don't you long for more? I think every longing we have, our deepest longings, our sexual longings, are pointing us to the deeper, greater intimacy that we long for, that we'll one day experience in our, in our union with Christ fully. I remember back when I was in early high school, I remember telling God that I wanted to wait until I was married to have sex. Uh, I don't know if it was like a true love waits type weekend type thing, but I remember telling God, I want to, I want to have, I want to wait. But I had one stipulation and that was, God, if you could just hold off on this whole Jesus coming back thing until I get married, because sex, honestly, God sounds pretty good. I'd like to try that. That showed how much I misunderstood what it means for Jesus to come back. Like the sexual desire and longing that I had, that I have, that's just a dim shadow compared to the glorious reality of the true intimacy that I will experience when Jesus comes back. You know what Revelation 19 calls the return of Jesus? The marriage supper of the Lamb. The marriage supper of the Lamb. Listen to this, Revelation 19. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. That's us. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Why are they blessed? Because for eternity... You and I will experience perfect relational intimacy with God and with each other. We will know Jesus face to face. We will know one another with no barriers, better than any earthly marriage. That deep relational intimacy that we long for will finally come to fruition. We can't fathom that now. We really can't fathom it. We can only get little glimpses of it. And sex is good because it points to that true intimacy. But it's just a glimpse. It's just a glimpse of what we're made for. Maybe you're sitting here today and you're, and you're saying, well, okay. I see it. I see that the biblical vision of sex is that it is good. But I've blown it sexually. I've taken those deep longings that I have, those desires that sex only points to, and I've tried to fill them myself. I've tried to to meet those deep longings with lesser lovers, and I've blown it. I want you to know there's good news. 
There's good news for you. There's good news for me. There's good news for all of us because all of us have blown it sexually. And here's the good news. In John chapter 4, Jesus was having a conversation with a woman who had had five husbands. And the man that she was currently with was not her husband. She was a serial monogamist. She had blown it sexually big time. And you know what Jesus said to her in John chapter 4? He said, I'll give you living water. And if you drink of that water, you won't be thirsty again. And you know what she said? I will take some of that water, please. In other words, will you give me what it will take to meet my deepest thirst in life? And what Jesus said to her was, yes. And he provided that for her. She'd finally found the husband that she was looking for. In the words of Ephesians 5, he gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her, so that he might present her to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, that she might be holy and without blemish. Wow. Do you know that Jesus offers the same thing to you and me, no matter what our story? He takes our sexual spots and stains and blemishes and washes them clean with his own blood. It's the good news of the gospel. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Providence Church. For more resources and info, visit us online at www.providenceaustin.com.